Uh, hey there, everyone. Welcome to another. It's a Wednesday, so you know what we're doing here. You know why we are here. Wednesday afternoons, 4.20 p.m. every single time. A brand new episode of Because Cannabis from Wayward Media, wayward.media. I am BC Wayman. This is Dustin Kava. Hello, Dustin. How are you today? I'm amazing. Amazing. Oh, Dustin's amazing. You can tell when we have a guest that Dustin's excited about. If you go back through. If you go to YouTube <laughs> at Because Cannabis, if you have subscribed to our channel, uh, which of course you should, if you have followed us on Meet WM anywhere you do social, if you go back to our YouTube channel, you can go to our Spotify as well and listen to it anywhere you listen to audio podcasts, the show's available. But if you go back to our YouTube or anywhere else and watch through the episodes, you can tell the ones where the guest, and you don't know who the guest is right now. Well, technically you do because it's on the subject and the title, but we're <laughs> pretending like you don't uh, in this very moment. Uh, you can tell when Dustin's excited because he gets a little giddy. He gets a little excited. You know, he gets all a little, a little uh, pep in your step, as one might say, Dustin Kava. Do you say you have a pep in your proverbial step today? You know what I do? And thinking back, I can definitely see all the episodes where I was extremely excited ahead of time. I start giggling ahead of, uh, yeah, you're right. I do get giddy. Uh, it's giddy. We, we get giddy. <laughs> Both of us get giddy. Giddy on up when we have a great guest today. So we're excited to talk to Dr. Peter Grinspoon here in just a few moments. Uh, thank you for joining the show because Cannabis Wayward Media, Wednesdays 420 and the following Thursday, anywhere that you listen to audio podcasts. Dustin, do you have a, do you have a mentor? Do you have someone I've, I've been going through this deep dive on like podcasts and I'm currently listening to this audio podcast series about Rama, kind of the spiritual guide from the 80s and stuff. But he was like a cool bro spiritual guide with Porsches and like sing songs and comedian jokes. Uh, and he was like about mentors and people following them across the country. Do you have a like a person who has guided you, who has shown you the way, whose uh, ideas you look up to? Uh, you know what? I and, and we mentor a lot of business students and I really, I always say one of the, one of the, you know, we talk about having an account and we talk about having a lawyer when you're starting a business. We even talk about having a partner in a lot of ways. It's incredibly important to have a mentor. And we even talked to a recent guest, Chad Price, I believe, who was explaining that importance of you have this mentor who is a couple steps ahead of you who can help kind of lay the groundwork, the foundation for you to kind of walk that next step. And eventually, sometimes you surpass your mentor and you get a new mentor who's even further ahead or you start mentoring others of the path you've walked. And today I do have a lot of mentors. Uh, I have a really good friend of mine who, um, his name is Sam Price. He's actually in Massachusetts, home of our guest right now um, in Boston. And I do see him as a mentor. Um, and I've had many, many more throughout my life. So it's, I, yes, it's important to me. I don't know if I really have a mentor. I don't know if there's anyone's dig uh, vibe that I dig that much uh, to do those things. But it can be tough if your mentor, like say you have a mentor or randomly, let's say someone you run into offers you like constructive criticism or like feedback, you know, like let's say you're writing a paper. Let's say you're a young, you know, whatever kind of age, a growing up young, impressionable youth kind of person uh, there and you're kind of writing this paper and putting it out there uh, and you think, oh, I want to just talk about it. And you're talking about it to your parents and your parents are like, hey, I'm going to let my buddy here who we're hanging with, he's going to check it out uh, and do that. And then that person happens to be, you know, like Carl freaking Sagan, right? And looking at it. Is that something, would you be intimidated if an 
an SME <laughs> that's subject matter expert of the highest regard. Would you be intimidated if an SME uh, critiqued what you were doing if they knew something so well? A hundred percent. How can you not? You got, I picture in their head like 30,000 research papers and articles and books that they've read and just this mountains of the, and I picture me smoking a doobie behind my house and hiding in the woods, you know, and I'm like, I'm just not the same. I'm just, I'm certainly not the same. Uh, I'm excited. We're excited. We get just a few minutes here. You're listening because cannabis from wayward media will bring in our guest, Dr. Peter Grinspoon. Uh, let's talk about smoking joints with a lot of different people. Have you, uh, would you feel weird? Like you're someone, Dustin, I look at you as someone who is a confident cannabis smoker, even though you are a societal, socially anxiety ridden nutball, but you still are like an OG, like cannabis smoker kind of way. Do you feel like when you're consuming cannabis uh, with someone or maybe would you ever want to smoke with a celebrity? Let me get everyone always. There's a whole song like smoking with Willie and things like that. Would you ever want to smoke cannabis with a celebrity? Um. <laughs> you know what? I, yeah, a hundred percent. I mean, I feel like there have been some musicians that I've gotten to have the pleasure of smoking with like Cottonmouth Kings and stuff like that. You smoke but, weed with Cottonmouth Kings? Shut the front door. You know what, man? We've had, with my young, my young adult life was filled with a lot of weird scenarios of like eating. I, I've somehow eaten Chinese on a second occasion with Cottonmouth Kings and pizza with yeah. like tech nine. And like, I don't know how this shit has happened, but it, it, it has, but, uh, you know, I, you know what? I don't, I, I think I'm more intimidated. I, I don't know. No, I, I think the weed is not what intimidates me. It's it's just how fucking busy these people are. And it's well, just our that guest today, uh, our guest today, Dustin, our guest today, uh, ironically, we're going to bring in Dr. Peter Grinspoon, Dr. Peter Grinspoon. You can check him out. Uh, I mean, obviously all over the place, but PeterGrinspoon.com and Dr. Peter Grinspoon, brand new book just out there, April 20th, Seeing Through the Smoke Cannabis, an expert doctor untangles the truth about cannabis. Dustin was reading your book today uh, and yesterday. Peter, and he discovered that you've smoked weed with some famous people, right? And so I'm always nervous as someone who consumes, and we're going to talk a lot about your story, and we'll get to everything that goes on, especially the book, Seeing Through Smoke, Cannabis, an Expert Doctor Untangles the Truth About Cannabis. As someone who's consumed for a while and been around, consumed products on four, uh, four continents, do you ever get intimidated by someone? Like in the, in the smoking circle, would you ever be like, man, I want to smoke with this person? Is that an intimidating thing, or is it just a chill sesh for you at this point? <laughs> well, first of all, I'm going to get in trouble because doctors aren't right now supposed to use cannabis. I just you know, to... hypothetically of always doctor. You know, yeah, exactly. Like... No, I don't. I don't get intimidated. If someone's smoking weed with you, um, they're just smoking weed with you. They're just another person who's connecting, bonding, enjoying life, uh, trying to be in, in the moment and sharing jokes, sharing thoughts, sharing ideas. It's a person to person. I don't don't get intimidated. Well, you shouldn't. Uh, and that's, let's start right there then. You are a doctor, right? Dr. Peter Grinspoon, uh, petergrinspoon.com. But yet you are out here. You have a whole book, right? Seeing Through the Smoke, Cannabis, an Expert Doctor Entangles the Truth About Cannabis, putting it out there. And Dustin and I are in Northeast Ohio. We know that you are out in Massachusetts. Uh, and Ohio is a very rigid state. We have our doctors in our three big systems, you know, like the Cleveland Clinic, Summa, UH, whatever they are. They're not allowed to recommend cannabis, not allowed to work in it. So it feels like physicians in our state, and I know physicians in a lot of states have this almost like underground network of doctors, which also I think makes it less legitimate in some people's eyes. Uh, why are, that's a big question, but why are doctors 
some of them so uncomfortable with cannabis as a therapeutic aspect? Well, I could spend the whole hour talking about that. That's a <laughs> it's a, it's a, well, and it's actually a very large portion of the history wrote in the book as well. Yeah. I mean, doctors used to be proponents of cannabis. They, we, it was a widely prescribed medication in the United States in the late 1800s and early 1900s. When it was criminalized in 1937, the main voice against criminalization was the American Medical Association. Uh, doctors were under a lot of pressure um, after that from the war on drugs to switch sides. And really, unfortunately, the doctors have been on the wrong side of the war on drugs for the last 50 years. I have a whole chapter about that. You know, doctors are supposed to do no harm. I, my chapter is called Do Be No Harm. About how much harm, <laughs> about how much harm the doctors have done by being on the wrong side of the war on drugs. Um, very briefly, my dad was a very famous and legendary cannabis scholar and expert. And he said that physicians for the last 50 years have been both victims of and perpetrators of a lot of the dishonesty and misinformation that the U.S. government has been promulgating uh, in order to wage its war on drugs. They couldn't really do a war on drugs with just like opiates and cocaine. There weren't enough people. They needed to, to stigmatize and, and pathologize cannabis use. And, and doctors sadly just went along with it. But, you know, this is changing. Uh, many doctors are in favor of medical marijuana, uh, even recreational marijuana. They, they realize that you don't want to be criminalizing people, arresting people, getting them involved with the criminal justice system that's so much more harmful uh, for people than using cannabis. And furthermore, there are very real medicinal and lifestyle benefits to cannabis. So, so we're getting there, but you know, there are just a lot of obstacles because they don't teach the endocannabinoid system in medical schools. They just teach it in 13% of medical schools. And, and also it's a whole paradigm shift uh, with cannabis. You know, if I'm your doctor and you have high blood pressure, take 10 milligrams of Lipitor I'm sorry, Lisinopril, and then I'll check your blood pressure in a month. Uh, with cannabis, it's like you just certify someone and, uh, you know, they sort of in an iterative fashion uh, figure out what what works and what doesn't work. And, mm. you know, we aren't given very much uh, practical information to help patients with either. So the final thing I want to say is that it's very, very dangerous when patients and doctors don't communicate uh, about medical marijuana or any marijuana use. Uh, for example, the Cleveland Clinic is still in the early medieval dark ages about cannabis. And yeah. they, for ridiculous reasons, don't let doctors certify patients. Yet if you look on their website, they sell all these alternative nutritional supplements, which don't do And they've built CBD wings in their hospitals <laughs> while <laughs> telling their doctors not necessarily to discuss it. So it is really- Absolutely. It's like hypocrisy with a capital H, with a hashtag hypocrisy. <laughs> so, but what happens is that patients like- 94% of Americans support legal access to medical marijuana because Americans much earlier than doctors realize that we've been sold a complete bill of goods about cannabis and that it is helpful and that a lot of the harms have been exaggerated. So what happens is that, as you alluded to, BC, they're like parallel care paths. They talk to their doctor about everything else and they find a different cannabis specialist to get their medical yeah. cannabis certification. And that's really dangerous. There could yeah, be drug interactions. There can be changes in anesthesia requirements. And, you know, the, the most important thing, I think, is that we create a climate where doctors and patients um, can talk about uh, their drug use or their me medicine use or cannabis use without stigma, shame or judgment. It makes it much more productive and safer for everybody. Yeah, as a, as a patient myself, being able to have that conversation with a doctor who can actually say, maybe cannabis is the lesser of two evils within this. Maybe instead of prescribing you an anti-anxiety, this might actually end up being better for you in the long run. Um, 
I also think that it, it kind of reminds me of a quote that your dad said in one of his earlier books. I think it was, uh, there is something very special about illicit drugs in that they don't always make the drug user act irrationally, but they certainly cause many non-users to behave that way. And so, and it's that idea of like, it's almost erratic. It's that the people who are not using it are thinking it's so irrational. Even for me to bring it up to my doctor is almost irrational at this point because of how firm the stance is on it. Um, and, and I think it puts a lot of it all in perspective of just the last 30, 40 years, 50 years. Well, it puts the doctors in the Cleveland Clinic in the position of saying, well, actually, I'm giving you an opiate uh, instead of cannabis for your chronic pain. That's safer. Or I'm giving you non-steroidals, which, you know, your Advils, your Napersons, if they don't destroy, give you a heart attack or an ulcer, they'll destroy your kidneys. That's safer. Or they're in the position of saying, I'm going to give you Valium or Ambien for sleep. That's safer than cannabis. It puts... It contributes to the moral injury that the doctors are experiencing for an institution like the Cleveland Clinic to have such a like pervasively brain dead and anachronistic uh, view towards medical marijuana. I see some of it as well on the patient side. I was surprised, Dustin, actually some people you know recently, I was having a conversation kind of about this same thing. I mentioned how I to tell my doctor. I had a recent doctor visit going through something. They asked if I consume cannabis. I said yes, and I was at a Cleveland Clinic uh, facility, and they kind of got weird towards me, which I thought was funny because I was about to have some anesthesia, but it went fine normally, but it did get awkward. And so I was telling people the story and sharing this antidote in several of them. Several of them, all these people who are hardcore cannabis, they're all patients, they're all consumers, they're all very confident out of the cannabis closet advocates, they're not shy about telling people, they won't mention it to their doctor because of fear of repercussion, of fear of not being able to get other drugs, one's a parent, fear of being put on some list like Elaine from Seinfeld and not being able to, to be blackballed throughout all these other areas. So I was surprised and to learn, I think, on the patient side, how much they're reluctant to tell their doctor and cannabis has, you know, histories of, you know, antitrust and anti-government things. Is that something that we have to work with patients to, to help them be more confident or is it with a place like the clinic, for example, not to name drop, but we sorry, uh, you know, like, are, is it one of those things where it's gotta be both sides? Cause I feel like the patients are reluctant too. I know Dustin, we talk, I'm confident, but not a lot of patients seem to be. Well, you know, it's a hangover from the war on drugs. Uh, the government, and as I alluded to earlier, the medical establishment went along with it, which is really unfortunate, has been tainting and stigmatizing cannabis users and cannabis for the last half century. So, you know, it's not it's understandable that patients feel awkward. But but mostly I think it's a, a, a failure of, of, of these doctors for not creating an environment uh, that patients feel comfortable. If a patient drinks too much, or if they use heroin, or they have a sex addiction, or they're gambling too much. We want to not judge them or stigmatize them. We want to create a welcoming, non-judgmental environment, regardless of what we think of it, so that we can help them. And it's the same with cannabis. I mean, if people, their patients are talking to them about cannabis, there are many opportunities to do harm reduction. You shouldn't smoke it. You might use a dry or vaporizer. It's better for your lungs. Keep the dose low. Start low and go slow don't use before driving. It hasn't been shown to be safe during pregnancy. There are a lot of things that doctors can do to make all of these behaviors safer. It's not like all or nothing. And doctors are just depriving their patients of this counsel and depriving themselves of the benefit to help their patients by failing to create a climate where patients feel comfortable, exactly as you've been talking about BC. I think it's really tragic and that as a profession, we need to do a lot better. 
as I was reading your books, one of the biggest take, one of the biggest takeaways I actually got was how much the doctors early on could have been the largest advocates for change of, of all within the country, not some political person, not, uh, you know, and uh, some other group or action committee. It really would have been the physicians that would have pushed back against the rhetoric of what hmm. was being said, knowing the history of the plant and its use medicinally for a very long time. And to have that instant switch over a very short time, 10, 20 years, or, to, you know, to, the loss of actual progress that we have endured over the last 50 years, almost because of that. And I never saw them as the very first people on the front lines. I always saw them as kind of the third or fourth or fifth wheel in the cog. And it, and it really isn't or wasn't. Uh, it's astounding how much harm we could have prevented. I mean, you know, big numbers are sort of hard to conceptualize, like the U.S. government's $20 trillion in debt. But there have been more than $20 trillion arrests for nonviolent cannabis possession over the last 50 years, uh, mostly in uh, people, people of color. You know, blacks and whites use cannabis at about the same rate, but blacks get arrested about four times as often. And when you get arrested and involved with the criminal justice system, that is horrible for your health, way worse than anything cannabis can do. And it affects your employment, it affects your your housing, it affects your education, your your student loans. And it's just like such a tragedy that the doctors, as I said earlier, were on the wrong side of the war on drugs. They could have been advocating for patients. I mean, the war on drugs is just a war against people, mostly brown and black people, but against all people. The war on most people are finally understanding that the war on drugs is completely wrong from beginning to end. I mean, you know, they say one definition of insanity is uh, keep doing the same thing over and over again and expect different consequences. We have a hundred thousand people a year dying of fentanyl overdoses. I mean, we have to just legalize and regulate these drugs. But I know today's program is about cannabis, but, you know, doctors just sat by and, and promulgated misinformation instead of like taking a stand. And, you know, again, it's hard to even fathom how much health and social and emotional agony we could have prevented if we had just pushed back against the whole war on cannabis users. It, I think part of it could be because of, I don't know, and maybe you can, you're obviously more involved in this world than I am, but I think sometimes the physician's reluctance to kind of put personal opinions or personal thoughts out there. For example, one of the weird random things I do is I do like training for like continuing education, like in person. So I role play for these student doctors. And we did all these role plays where there was an ethics committee role play. And so we had all these different scenarios. Uh, I was ironically a cannabis pitch person. There was a woman who was trying to go on a date with a person. There's all these things, right? You pretend you, you do live action, their teacher kind of grades them. And in every single one, the end result lesson was basically keep a very clear separation of essentially personal professional. You don't let your, you know, some of those thoughts out. You go with what the medicine says. You follow these things. Like you don't kind of interject and been both your book, Free Refills, which tells a very, you know, intimate story on your past and what you overcame. And then obviously now your new book and seeing through the smoke, um, you're out there telling your your story and your opinions. And I don't feel like I look at my physician as someone who I don't know a lot about. Like they're just this person that I don't have the background to. And I don't know if I want to, is that a thing that doctors need to overcome? Is it something that you are more on the Island with someone who's out there shouting? Is it a normalcy for doctors to be more reluctant? And maybe that's why we're not more open to personal beliefs. Well, that's a complicated question. Um, you know, doc doctors, 
you know, ethics are critical. And like, um, there've been so many violations in the past and, and part of how we've evolved our like current ethical system is by, you know, people making mistakes and then sort of evolving the system. And like, you know, doctors and patients can't have a sexual relationship. That's because there's a power dynamic. The, the doctor controls whether you get disability, handicapped parking, opiates. Uh, there, it's just not an evil, uh, it's not an equal footing in terms of like the power dynamic. At the same time, doctors are people too. I mean, and, you know, we're allowed to have personalities. Uh, when patients come in, I joke with them and, you know, patients are often like, how are your kids? They're allowed to get to know us. So, uh, and it's not entirely a clear line always, you know, you see a patient at a party, uh, some doctors think you're supposed to pretend you don't know them. Mm -hmm. Other, other doctors are like, Hey, how'd your the inguinal hernia surgery go? And like, we don't really know where the line is a hundred percent, but we're learning, but that, that is really complicated. But I think, you know, again, doctors are people too. And, um, we're suffering. We're, we have the highest suicide rate of any, of any profession. I mean, one of my specialties, cause my last book is, is physician health. And, um, I, I, I just think that, um, you know, the expectations on doctors and the, the burnout they're suffering and the, the moral injury that they're suffering from not being able to take as good care of patients is like the insurance companies and the hospitals suck every molecule of empathy and energy mm. from you uh, is making it very difficult. And I think part of what can revive doctors is just humane connection with each other, with patients, with their community. I think connection is critical. So that is what you're asking about, BC, is like a very complex and, and evolving line. Uh, I feel very comfortable uh, talking about this stuff because I think um, one thing I learned during my addiction to opiates 15 years ago was that secrecy, isolation, and silence are what keep you sick. And yeah. what makes you better mm -hmm. is being open and connected and not having secrets and not having to always like hide these parts about yourself. So I'm a big, big believer, both like kind of professionally and interpersonally being like open and honest. I, I don't think you could ever get in trouble for being open and honest. Uh, one of the things that I have seen a lot recently, and you kind of are, I mean, talking about this as an opioid uh, addiction who has come, who's overcome that easy for me to say, geez, and then gone through and now, you know, it's out there and talking about cannabis and some of its usage is this idea of cannabis, or we can even piggyback this into psychedelics, which are becoming very popular for things like addiction recovery, things like even quitting smoking and gambling to hardcore heroin addictions. We're seeing people either use cannabis or more recently psilocybin and DNT and these other guided uh, visits. But then you have the other side, which is very loud as they sometimes are talking about how, you are essentially, you know, replacing one drug for another drug kind of thing. And it's a hard conversation to have. And I don't have the like the wherewithal sometimes uh, to kind of give a great answer. I can just talk a lot till they get bored and walk away. But I don't really have a good, solid, confident answer, uh, Dr. Grinspoon. So what's some things we can say to people who are looking at using other things which have proven successful but still are considered a drug in their head? Or how's that process been? Well, we have a lot of work to do. I mean, I, unfortunately, a lot of the addiction um, community and uh, thinking goes right back from to Alcoholics Anonymous. Uh, the book was written in 1937. And, you know, interestingly, Bill W., the head of it, was very interested in psychedelics, and he used LSD for his recovery. Yet somehow they came up with this very sort of religious-based, Christian, abstinence-based, abstinence-only recovery process. And then, you know, flash forward, as doctors, we use methadone, we use suboxone, buprenorphine with incredible efficacy in treating opiate addiction. There's like an 80% reduction in overdose and deaths. And then you hear these stories from Alcoholics Anonymous meetings like, oh, you're not really in recovery because you're on Suboxone, go away. And it's like killing people, this stigma and judgmentalism. 
judgmentalism. Furthermore, there's no science that you're not in recovery if you're on Suboxone. I mean, we view it at Mass General Hospital like if you have diabetes, you're on insulin. It controls your sugar. If you have opiate addiction, you're on Suboxone. It helps you live and not overdose. And increasingly, people are becoming interested in using psychedelics. The preliminary data is astounding at how helpful uh, psychedelics can be. I had a friend that went to an ayahuasca ceremony and she didn't touch alcohol or cigarettes for six months with no craving. She wasn't like wow. white knuckling it. She literally lost her taste for it. And then cannabis, the whole gateway theory of like cannabis leads to heroin and damnation and ruin uh, is just a big nothing burger of the drug war. I mean, everybody who becomes addicted to heroin drinks milk as a child. They are associated. But the drinking <laughs> milk as a baby doesn't cause you to become addicted. And using cannabis wasn't causing these addictions. Uh, it was more the uh, alcohol and the tobacco when they really looked at the research. And, you know, people are saying that the, the cannabis is much more of a gateway off of addiction. If it's opiate addiction, I, I tend to use Suboxone because there's more data, though I use the, uh, the cannabis to treat chronic pain, in anxiety, withdrawal symptoms, a lot of the things that keep people on the opiates in the first place. Um, I've had a lot of success getting people off alcohol to cannabis. And it's very hard to argue that, that that's not harm reduction at its finest. Yes. So I'm a huge believer in cannabis playing a role at times, an adjunctive role, not the methadone, not the suboxone, but an adjunctive role, but a very important role in helping people get off um, a variety of addictions. So uh, BC, that would be my uh, best answer to your question. <laughs> uh, quick side note, I know Dustin wants to say so. Uh, Dr. Bob's house is like four minutes from where I live. Just oh, to cool. give a background. Yeah, it's right down the road. I pass it often. Uh, it's right here in Akron, Ohio, where I'm at. Uh, so just when everyone brings up AA, like there's so many dry houses and stuff kind of where I live because of the whole, uh, his house being too, down the road. I um, We talk a lot about almost there's not enough education about the ill within our industry from the people who are actually within it, functioning within it, talking about it, active within it. Um, there's not enough talk about the adverse effects of cannabis in certain ways, but the more we talk about outside of the community, it's almost all they talk about. I, I'd like to hear kind of your take on that because I do and in, in, like I said, in some regards, when I talk to my, my doctor, I cannot talk about it. But when I talk to my an instructor at the Cleveland School of Cannabis or somewhere else, I almost feel like they're not telling me enough about the negative. They're mm. preaching, you know. I just yes. spoke to them, actually. I just spoke to, with the Cleveland School of Cannabis. We had a really great session with all the students. You know, I mean, honestly, that's why I wrote my book. Uh, you know, he, his beautiful cover, seeing through. It the is smoke. a great, by the way, yeah, great. Dustin's a graphic designer, and we were looking at it. The uh, we were looking at the cover, and he's like, "That is a quality design book cover." Yeah, seeing they did a the great smoke. job. But, but Dustin, that's such an important point, and that that's a critical point, and that's exactly why I wrote my book. I mean, if depending on who you talk to, which doctor, which uh, activist, which business person, which social worker, which lawyer, it sounds like they're talking about two different plants grown <laughs> on different planets uh, nourished by different suns yes. and that's so confusing which is why in my book i go through all of the harms both real and imagined it doesn't cause dna damage or whatever they used to say grow breasts your testicles fall off but there are some very very important harms, I used to, yeah <laughs> um, that we need to talk about and the benefits the, the pro side doesn't talk enough about the harms and whenever a new study comes out saying there might be a harm they just dismiss it as like, oh, that's the same old government pro propaganda. Yes. And if you use cannabis medicinally or recreationally, of course, you should want to know about the harms. It's like you know about the harms of alcohol and then you still might decide to have a couple of beers anyways. How could you make an informed 
decision if you don't know about the harms. And the anti-people are so close-minded about the benefits. The American Medical Association and the American Psychiatric Association still put um, medical marijuana, they surround it with these derogatory quotation marks. So it's quote unquote medical marijuana, like that's only for <laughs> and children, you know, people who have low medical sophistication. And there are harms, you know, we don't know that it's safe with pregnancy or breastfeeding. It shouldn't be used. It not safe to drive, not as dangerous as alcohol, but not safe. We're concerned about the effect of the, the teen brain. There's no crack babies. That was all nonsense. And it's not as bad as alcohol, but certainly we don't want teenagers using it. We say to them, just say, wait. And it can certainly destabilize people who have a history or tendency towards psychosis, such as bipolar or schizophrenia. There are harms. There are also the benefits, you know, there's a reason that 94% of Americans are in favor of legal access to medical marijuana because it helps them. It helps them with pain, anxiety, insomnia. I could list about 50 things it helps them with. And we both sides need more like open-mindedness. They need more humility. Like not everything I believe or know is 100% correct. And I'm always open to changing my belief system. And they also need to sort of forget some of what they learned and just like approach any new information, any new study, any new book, any new data point with open-mindedness because we're learning a lot about it. There were more than 4,000 studies last year about cannabis. We're going to learn more about how it helps and how it harms. There's no free lunch. There's no magical substance, drug, medicine, anything that doesn't have any harm. So I really want the cannabis supporters to be open-minded about the harms and the cannabis skeptics to be open-minded about the benefits. That's the only way that we're going to come back together into a reasonably coherent uh, understanding of and policy around cannabis in our society. I almost seem like some of the pro advocates have actually benefited from the lack of medical research over the last 40 years oh. or the squashing down. I feel like that's of a really hot take, by the way. There's some people who get really mad because I've said that before. They get mad when you say that because they're like, they, they get all up in arms about this, but that's a hot take. I mean, I, 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 there's, there's something to that, but I do say, I will say that from when your father started that 13% agreeing with that too. I think he's saying to say 94%. It was such a hot take. Uh, we lost Dustin. It was such a hot take. Dustin froze mid thought going through. Look at Dustin back. I think he was going to say, has Oh, Hey Dustin, you kind of froze out for a second there. We're losing you. Oh my gosh. Uh, we, you were at the third, you were, we said it's such a hot take. You actually froze in time. You were so upset. You're talking <laughs> uh, about, I think the 13%, uh, when Lester yeah, Grinspoon was there to what it was, now. was when Lester Grinspoon, when your father was first discussing and advocating for this day one, it, you know, there was 13% of the population in the country who was actually saying, yes, we think that there should be some, there's something here. And then now in 2020, the fact that there's 65 or 70% that are in agreement with that, it, it does still show what 50 years of movement has happened within the country. And I think it is a powerful statement from. No, it, it really itself. is. But, you know, when the government lies about stuff, they they have a hard time getting credibility back. You know, sort of <laughs> like if you lie to your teenager, like the D.A.R.E. program, if you say all these horrible things happen with cannabis, you know, and again, we don't want teens on cannabis, but the way to convince them is not to lie to them. And then they have their lived experience, uh, which contradicts this. And then they threw away the entire D.A.R.E. message and drug use uh, went up. And, you know, the same with the government. I People coming into me saying the government lied to me about cannabis. Why should I get a tetanus vaccine? They're probably lying to me about that. I mean, you have to not mess around with your credibility. Or you're going to have a very hard time getting it back. Uh, you, it one more thing, BC, I just got to oh, say. Go ahead. Um, 
But you, in general, you literally grew up in one of the most profound households for having this topic <laughs> of conversation. I couldn't imagine being in a young age in your household going to a D.A.R.E. program and being like, what? Like, <laughs> I have Carl Sagan literally philosophizing, you know, like talking about some of these things in my household. And you are just telling me this. I, I mean, you... I, that it had to breed a total different experience for you in school growing up and even hearing a lot of this stuff. Um, I, I just recorded a video, which I'm going to release very soon about that. You know, in my household, I had like this whole collection of like, like the brightest and kind of like intellectual luminaries. The peace pipe was always burning. And I came to associate a cannabis with like very intelligent thoughts, very thoughtful decisions, very articulate people, a lot of humor, a lot of creativity. I, I also came to associate it with healing because my brother Danny was dying from leukemia and the cannabis was really helping him with the chemotherapy. So I'm associating cannabis, all these good things. And then I go to the D.A.R.E. program in junior high school and the same policemen waddle in from Dunkin' Donuts and, and, and tell us things which are absolutely nonsense. And they they barely seem to have the gumption to, to finish their lecture. Then they're back to Dunkin'. And I was like, you know, as a 14-year-old, like, who's motivational? Like Carl Sagan talking, like actually changing the world and my dad working to get a nuclear test ban or all the amazing social things they were working on? Or these people in school that were telling me things that I knew weren't true. And I, it really, uh, I think, uh, uh, caused trouble with my um, respect for authority. And I think that happened with a lot of kids because they just knew it wasn't true. And again, once you squander credibility with a teenager, good luck getting it back, which is why I'm a real huge believer with, with patients, you know, and with teenagers, I tell the truth. You know, cannabis is, you know, people do enjoy it, but it can harm your brain. Most Teenagers don't want to harm your brain. So our message isn't just say no. That's completely ridiculous. Our message is just say wait. It's like an okay thing to do when you're older, but don't do it when you're younger and you're going to harm yourself. Most kids don't want to harm themselves. Just say wait. We're going to make that go. We're going to make that slogan happen. Uh, we're talking with Dr. Peter Grinspoon, petergrinspoon.com, the author of Seeing Through the Smoke, Cannabis, an expert doctor untangles the truth about cannabis as well as free refills. A doctor confronts his addiction. Those books are available on Amazon. You can get them through the link, petergrinspoon.com slash book uh, down in our comments below. Uh, Peter, as we start to wrap up here, so where do we go next? I mean, we have this. We've been in the stalemate. We've thought at some point in the last six, seven years, we were going to have some sort of federal policy. I feel Feel like we are farther away from a federal policy than ever. And I actually feel like state by state deschedulization and then legalization makes more sense. Uh, your thoughts kind of like on the future of cannabis. We've we've talked about what is happened. Do we turn it around? Does this right itself? Do we continue down the dark path? Like, what do you think kind of happens in your knowledge in the next five to six years in cannabis and medicine? Do we ever get the synergy or do we still walk two separate paths? I'm very hopeful. Uh, I'm extremely hopeful. I, we will get to federal legalization. There's no reason for it not to be legal. I mean, the, the illegality is so much, as we mentioned earlier, more harmful than the use of cannabis. And and other countries are legalizing. In Europe, um, in South America, in Latin America, we're not going to be the last country to legalize cannabis. So we're we're getting there. Um, and we're also getting there state by state. You know, we now have a 22nd and a 23rd state that is full legalization for adult use. And 
increasingly we have better medical programs and that's spreading as well. Um, it starts to get a little bit ridiculous, like preposterous when like, what are we going to have a situation where like all 50 states are legal and the federal government still says it is illegal? But I think with federal legality, it's going to become a lot more coherent. The education's going to be coherent, the, the trade, the interstate commerce, the labeling, um, the instructions, the, the sharing of information is going to become less destigmatized. So if people do get addicted to cannabis, they can get help more easily. So I honestly think, you know, we need to still roll up the sleeves and sort of invoke the spirit of my dad of like Lester Grinspoon to keep working away because, you know, in some states like Idaho, it's still fully illegal. People are still getting arrested and even going to prison just for using medical marijuana. So we have a lot of work to do, but if you take stock, and again, I've been watching this uh, due to no choice of my own for my whole life, we are making so much progress. We've gone from it being completely illegal with like during the Reagan years, 800,000 arrests um, a year for simple wow. nonviolent cannabis possession. We're down to now like what, 300,000 or 350,000 a year? Yeah, but less and less as we get more legalization. Mm -hmm. we're, we're definitely getting there and the education's getting better. The doctors are slowly but surely, surely um, becoming more in favor of it. The patients are in favor. Of it. So I would say we're definitely, you know, uh, I, I hated most of the slogans in recovery, but one of them I did like was uh, progress, not perfection. And I would say that progress, not perfection, sort of um, defines where we are with the whole cannabis uh, situation right now. It almost breaks my heart, though, that as these arrests are dropping, even in Columbus, Ohio, <coughs> we are four times more likely to um, arrest uh, an African-American person. And so it's like, yeah, these arrests are going down, but that that four to one ratio is still very prevalent, even two hours south of here. And it's still happening. And it's, it, it, it just, to me, it, I don't know. I still think that that's where I still get disenfranchised about those numbers dropping. Cause to me, the amount of families still affected is it, it's massive. Um, no, absolutely. Yeah. And we have so much work to do with like expunging criminal records and, repairing these whole neighborhoods were destroyed by the war on drugs. Our law enforcement enriched itself. They're allowed to seize assets of anybody who they, they suspect of drug dealing. And cannabis is like literally the biggest cash I've cow. I've lived it. I was, my parents gave me up to a specialty behavior modification school over cannabis. And this organization had plenty of lawyers and plenty of judges all across the country who would, uh, court, uh, quote unquote, court order children to these behavior modification centers because of cannabis use and thus collect a cutback of thousands of dollars a month in tuition and numerous things. And it is it, a cash cow from beginning to end, from beginning you know, to end, a hundred percent to the, from the rehab industry. That's, and that's how they inflate the, the numbers for cannabis addiction. Cause a lot of people get sent there by the courts, you know, the kid gets busted and they ask the parents, do you want your kids to go to juvie or to rehab for a month? And the yes. parents, of course, are like rehab. And then they call it cannabis addiction. It's not cannabis addiction. It's like kid was busted for cannabis. He <laughs> was addicted and repeat all these ridiculous slogans from Alcoholics Anonymous, like let go and let God or whatever that means for the next 30 days. So it is a cash cow. And that's a lot of the reason why. Um, you know, we're having trouble educating certain people about that, like law enforcement. You know, there's this great quote from Upton Sinclair. It's difficult to get a man to understand something when his salary depends on him not understanding it. Yeah. And honestly, I think it's that simple for a lot of a lot of people. And it's not just cannabis. It's for drugs across the board.
I'm reading a book called Radium Girls right now as well. And it's that exact thing, the corporations who are doing dial painting, radium dial painting. And it's, yeah, their salary was so high that that what is harmful and what is, you know, it just, it doesn't compute at that same thing. It's more, it's easier to forget when you're collecting that paycheck and your job it is to forget. No, um, we I actually, with, yeah, we saw that with alcohol and tobacco, you know. And they, it's amazing what lines they crossed in those industries, advertising to teenagers, like suppressing studies that show that it causes cancer. And then these are the people that are now trying to colonize the cannabis industry. So that's why it leaves everybody such a bad taste in everybody's mouth. And I, I think the cannabis is a whole nother topic, but the cannabis industry is really fighting for its identity because we've got half of the people are like these pro-social people that have risked everything to legalize cannabis. And then you've got these people coming in from alcohol and tobacco that nobody really wants that are not nearly as pro-social. So a very complicated dynamic having to do with exactly what you just mentioned, Dustin. It's going to be um, exciting. Uh, we'll see how it goes. I mean, part of, I think what we're trying to do, and we got to wrap up our show here, uh, Dr. Peter Grinspoon, uh, part of what we can do to help this is this right just having these conversations and we really appreciate you uh dr grinspoon joining us today here on because cannabis dr peter grinspoon petergrinspoon.com new book uh just out just out timely enough on 420 uh seeing through the smoke cannabis an expert doctor untangles the truth uh about cannabis uh we could give a quick shout out before we go by the way dustin uh does some work with grasslands and grasslands has a new show called wheatsmith and i know you know the d'angelos we had andrew d'angelo i saw an acknowledgement in the book about Steve and uh, it just I warmed my Steve heart because Steve is absolutely phenomenal and I just did work on another docuseries featuring him and and we've also had um, Andrew on our show to discuss a bunch of things and just the whole family is amazing. I was really glad to see that there's been correspondence between you and Steve back and forth before in the past. And then, you know, I just, well, I they've been, it. they've been critical for decades and they, they've seen both sides of it, the business side and the activism side. So they also have a very broad perspective on all of this. Uh, it is fantastic. We got to get Dr. Grinspoon out of here, uh, going out there, talking more cannabis with lots of great people. Uh, Peter, thank you so much for joining us on the show today. We definitely would love to have you back. And we're just like at the precipice of what we wanted to talk about. But we really appreciate you joining us today. Uh, everyone, go check out the book, Seeing Through Smoke, Cannabis and Expert Doctors Untangles the Truth About Cannabis. Uh, we'll talk to you later, Peter. Thank you, guys. Thanks for the great thank conversation. Thank you so much. It was amazing. Thank you. Uh, you guys, thank you. These conversations happen every single Wednesday, 4.20 p.m. on YouTube. Hit that subscription button, if you will. The next day, the show appears on audio. Definitely check it out on Spotify. Videos on Spotify now at MeetWM Socially. Uh, check out the Weedsmith Show. Uh, on the where's where can you find Weedsmith, Dustin? MyGrasslands.com slash Weedsmith. MyGrasslands. We'll put that link below. MyGrasslands.com slash Weedsmith. Uh, everyone, Dustin, everyone else, uh, we'll see you next Wednesday. <laughs>